Father, I thank you so much for an opportunity to come together. I pray, Father, that you will calm our hearts, that we would be focused. Pray, Father, that you would be with Ben as he brings the message. I pray that you would prepare our hearts for your word. Thank you, Father, for this people and for an opportunity to come together. Bless this time of worship. Thank you for your son. These things we ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to read you Revelation 19, uh, or chapter 19, verses 6 and 7. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. Let me urge you that this morning isn't here because it's Sunday and you were bored and you wanted to wake up and join a whole bunch of other people who were dressed up. Um, this is actually worship. We're here for a reason. We're here to worship God. This is very serious. Um, and there's a lot of gravity to it. I pray that we feel that gravity, that we pray, or that I pray that we sing praises to God, not because we have a pretty voice, not because we have an ugly voice, not because we're supposed to, or there's words on the screen, or you feel awkward if you're just standing there. You're singing to God. Um, I can't stress that enough. Um, so please, as we worship this morning, feel that sensation, feel that gravity that we'll someday be in heaven, hopefully, by his grace and mercy, that we'll be there singing those praises to him, exalting him for eternity. So please feel that. Please stand as we sing and about a year ago, uh, Sydney told us that she had prayed and uh, accepted Jesus into her heart. So we have spent some time uh, discussing with her uh, what that means, and we've uh, been engaging uh, the Word with her. And uh, a couple of months ago, she uh, came to us and said, uh, in our discussion, she said she was ready to be baptized. So we've looked at uh, what the Word says uh, with her and uh, discussed that with her. And uh, she uh, has been very anxious, very excited about uh, going forward in baptism. So um, that's why we're here today. We've had discussion with her. She's excited about her sins being washed away. Uh, we, we had some discussion about uh, what baptism is. We had some discussion about how it's not a uh, removal of dirt from the body. It's not a cleansing of the body, but it's a, uh, uh, it's a uh, appeal for a good conscience. And so um, that's why we're here today. So uh, I have a couple questions for Sydney. She didn't want to do a whole lot of talking today, but I uh, uh, had a couple questions for Sydney. Sydney, what must you do to be saved? I believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Is there any other way that you could be saved? No. And have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? Yes. All right. Based on that profession of faith and uh, in obedience to uh, Christ's command, I baptize you, uh, Sydney, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, I just come to you right now. I just thank you for um, 
making a way for us for salvation. I thank you for uh, Christ and the sacrifice that was made to, to redeem us, an unworthy um, unworthy people. God, I pray that uh, your spirit is moving. Uh, I thank you that your spirit is moving. And I can see that as evidence in uh, Sydney's heart. Father, I thank you for that. I thank you for um, uh, this process uh, that we're going through uh, with her. I pray that you would uh, continue to uh, help us to disciple this young child. I pray that this body would be active in discipling this child. I pray that you would um, uh, do your work of sanctification in her. Father, we just trust that you'll do that, and we look forward to it, God. And uh, pray that you would be with us today as we study your word. I pray that you would... Um, Help us to uh, see the word that's preached and see the truth in it and that we would uh, worship you all the more. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Sydney, you did a good job. I love that baptism because it was such a great illustration of um, abandon. <laughs> I've never seen that before and it was awesome. I just really secretly it was thankful for Terry that Sydney didn't come to Christ as an adult because that could have been ugly. <laughs> you might have back injury right now. Or... That was really, really a cool deal. Thank you, Sydney. Thank you, for Saddlers, for letting us celebrate with you um, through the ordinance of baptism. Let's start with prayer this morning, and then we'll climb into John chapter 17. Lord, what an awesome, awesome thing to participate in, not just witness, but to participate in, to see a girl just surrender herself to you and a family, um, to have the sweet privilege of escorting their daughter into the um, faith, into the people of God, and where we trust that she's been on the journey long before this morning, and that before you ever even knew her, that you had plans for her faith. We're thankful to have the opportunity this morning to step into that and have a snapshot of a, a girl, a little girl making an appeal to you for a good conscience through the finished work of Jesus Christ and to brave the watery ordeal and to step out on dry land. Lord, we're thankful. Um, this morning, in the next few minutes, I want to pray. Um, actually, I want to pray first for another church in town and uh, having Greg and Tracy here this morning is a a privilege, and they're on my heart and mine uh, this morning. And I want to pray for their marriage first. I pray that, they, that it is rich. It's just a sweet picture of the gospel for their family, uh, that their kids will recognize the gospel because they see it living, lived out in the way that Greg treats Tracy. And, Lord, I pray for the church that Greg pastors uh, for Westminster Presbyterian. Uh, I pray for your glory and your fame and for worship Pray for adoration, marvel, wonder, obedience, faith. And I pray that all of that will beget more of the same. Lord, I beg, beg for your glory um, to bring others to faith in Christ and to walking obedience with you as part of this people. I'm thankful for the sweet privilege of serving alongside Greg and Westminster Presbyterian. It's a privilege. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray for this people. I pray for an attentiveness that's beyond our capabilities. I pray for a clarity that's beyond my capabilities. I pray that the Spirit will speak in spite of us. And I'm thankful, before we ever even read this chapter, thankful that Jesus prayed out loud. 
and that we have a chance to hear and listen in through this recorded prayer. I'm thankful John was listening. That we can listen to a conversation between God the Son and God the Father. And we marvel at that privilege. And pray that we recognize the gravity of that in these next few minutes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in John chapter 17. <clears throat> this is a really special chapter. <clears throat> it's special because it's, in some ways, as I was praying there, it's a conversation, it's sort of a one-sided conversation between God the Son and God the Father. We don't have really many opportunities in our Bible to hear God talk to God. So to have the opportunity to listen in is really sort of a shocker. And I hope that in these next few minutes, in these past few weeks, as we've considered John chapter 17, that you recognize we stand on holy ground. I mean, all of this Bible is God-breathed, and it's all true, and it's all life-giving and living. But this is really a special chapter. And it should cause every single one of us to just kind of go, oh, we're listening to God talk to God. And in fact, I'm going to show you in the next few minutes, we're listening to God plead with God. It's awesome. We'll start with reading it. John chapter 17, this is prayed on the eve of his cross, out loud, thankfully, and John recorded it. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. This is the first of five requests in this prayer, petitions. It's really been our guide for unpacking this ocean of truth is to follow the petitions. The first request, Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they've believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the whole world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world, and I'm coming to you. And here's the second request. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. And here's the third request where we're going to be today. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one. Here's the fourth request. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, that the world, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so the world may know that you've sent me and love them, even as you love me. And here's the fifth request. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. Five petitions. A request for glory. A request for the protection of his followers. And the third that we're going to consider today, a request for sanctification for his followers. We're going to be focused primarily in verses 17 through 19. I'll let you know right now that I'm going to spare you the entire sermon this morning. We're going to do part two next week. It's just too much to, to digest today. Verses 17 through 19 is where we're going to focus this week and next. This morning, really, we're going to be unpacking verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate or sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. What I want to do this morning, really, is I want us to understand what Christ is pleading for here. And when I say pleading, let me introduce you to something that we can't get with the written word. You can with the Greek, but not everybody has access to that. And that's one of my jobs as the preacher, to bring out these things that are pertinent regarding the Greek. In this case, there's a, something here that's called an imperative mood of the Greek. There are three imperatives. You may be familiar with that word when someone says it's imperative that you do something. They're saying something with emphasis. It is urgent that you do something. In the Greek, an imperative might be something that's like a command. It might be something like a parent offers to a child, get out of the street. Get this done might be an imperative. There are three imperatives in the prayer. Now, if we know that there's a relationship between father and son that is sort of a hierarchy, and I say functional hierarchy, where God the Son is functionally subordinate to God the Father. He's fully God, but I'm saying functional subordination. Then we know that God the Son is not going to command the Father to do anything. So in the Greek language, when we're seeing an imperative in this chapter, we're seeing three of them. They instead are requests, and you could call them pleas. It's like the son is begging the father for something. Three of these five requests are pleas. The first plea that the son is sharing or requesting of the father is a request for his glory. Knowing that God is jealous for his own glory, that makes total sense. The second plea is a request for, his, for the protection of his father's or of, his, of his, his followers. Father, keep them in your name is a plea. Is that an encouragement to you? To know that the son is pleading for your protection? And the third plea is this plea for sanctification. Father, please, I am begging you to sanctify my followers. 
And not just these 11 that are sitting with me. We know there are 11 sitting with him at that point. Judas has left the table and left the setting. The 11 are sitting there with Christ, and he's not only pleading for them, but we know from verse 20 that he's also pleading for those who will believe in him through their word. That's us. God the Son is pleading with God the Father for our sanctification. Before we ever even consider what he's specifically asking for here, we've got to bring out the mood and know that this, he's begging for this thing that we're going to explore this morning. It's that important, and it means that much to him to beg the Father for that in us. This word sanctification is one that I've heard my entire life growing up in church. It's a big word, and it's hard to really understand. I've always heard it as a process. We're going to consider in these next few minutes whether it's a process or an event or both. But before we really consider whether it's process or event, I want to consider first what it means. The son is asking the father, begging the father, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So what does this plea mean? Let me tell you something before we consider what it means. I want to encourage you to be okay with learning a new language. Some of you who are new to the faith or some of you who have been in the faith, I need to confess to you that I spent a good portion of my early ministry trying to figure out how to take these big words and dumb them down and replace them with easy easy words, words that I often made up. (laughs) And that's okay to dumb things down to the point we can get them. But hopefully they're only so much so we can grab that big word and now embrace it. This word sanctification, just consider it merely a parking spot for a big, awesome thought. And it's going to be a word that's uncommon to the world because the world doesn't have this thought. So love these big biblical words like sanctification. Let's park something in that spot in the next few minutes. If you've been around this church a while, you know, too, that I don't deal with the Greek a whole lot unless there's good reason to. And I want to deal with the Greek a little bit this morning, not just dealing with mood, but dealing with meaning in these next few minutes because I think it's important and it's relevant. The Greek word for sanctify is a verb, and it's the word hagiadzo. It comes from the word for holy, hagias. So when you see the word sanctify, think a word that, again, I'm making up a word to holify. It's a good word. I'll put a little circle C behind it because I want to copyright it unofficially. Holify. Those words go together, hagias and hagiadzo. Hagias is just the adjective form of this verb, hagiadzo. It's translated in other places, consecrate, set apart, To make sacred or to make holy. I'm going to show you three aspects of this word. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. Three aspects to really bring out a fuller meaning of this word. To park something in that parking place. Matthew chapter 6. Christ has been teaching the the Sermon on the Mount, and in Matthew chapter 6, he begins to teach his disciples on prayer. This is likely a familiar passage to you. It's an early common memory verse, this prayer that Christ gives as an example. In chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. That word hallowed in the Greek is the word hagiazo that's translated over there in John chapter 17, sanctify. It could be translated, Father, sanctify your name. In this context, it brings out the first aspect of this meaning. Father, holify your name. He's starting his prayer out with a request, Father, bring your name and its use into alignment with who you are. You're bound to know that it's easy to use God's name in vain. It's not hard to hear that on a movie or in the workplace or maybe in our own home. It's a prayer here that at the beginning of it is saying, Father, I'm praying that your name on earth will come into alignment with who you really are, that it will be holified, it will be purified. And that eventually, at the very mention of your name, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess when your name is fully hallowed. That's what it means for his name to be hallowed and his name to be consecrated. That brings out the first meaning of this word, hagiadzo, to holify. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and look at the second aspect. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is writing on marriage and he's writing on the church. It seems at first that he's talking marriage exclusively, but then he says, I've been talking about the church. So this passage not only tells us a lot about our marriages, but it also tells us a lot about the church. And in chapter 5, verse 25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that, or so that, he might sanctify her. Now, this next phrase helps us understand the next aspect of this word, sanctification. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The next aspect of sanctification is cleansing. There's to to be holified, and there is to be Cleansed. We're going to come back to this passage later. I want you to pay attention to the, to the wash rag the husband is using in cleansing his wife because we're going to come back to that later. But just bring out the, the second aspect of sanctification there as a cleansing. The third aspect is in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Go ahead and turn there. <clears throat> Second Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. As you hear the word vessels, if you're familiar with Romans, you might be thinking of Romans 9, and that's very appropriate. In a great house there, not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. 
Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. And here's the next phrase. This is hagiazo in the Greek. Set apart as holy. Useful to the master of the house. Ready for every good work. This third aspect is brought out in this phrase, set apart as holy. This word means to holify, it means to cleanse, but it also means to set apart. That picture in Romans 9 where the potter is making all these pots and the potter has the right over to the clay to say, I'm going to have this pot for honorable use and this pot for common use. He can do that because he's the potter. To set aside some for honorable use is to sanctify those vessels, to set them apart for special use. That's the third aspect of this meaning. Here's some practical imagery to help you with that notion of being set apart. To be sanctified is to set that person or thing apart for the use intended by its designer. The potter says, I'm going to use this for special use. A pen is sanctified when it's used to write. Eyeglasses are sanctified when they're used to improve sight. A Louisville slugger is sanctified as it strokes a ball out of the park. When something is used as it was designed to be used, it is sanctified. In a theological sense, things are sanctified when they are used for the purpose God intends. A human being is sanctified, therefore, when he or she lives according to God's design and purpose. Really, it's being brought into alignment with the Creator's design. That's sanctification in terms of being set apart. That's what Christ is praying for here. It's a little word, it's a little verse, a little breath of phrase there that's easy to to miss if we don't engage the meaning of sanctification. He's asking for something Huge that both the 11 and those who would believe in him through their word, that we would be holified, that we would be washed, that we would be cleansed, and that we would be set apart for special use. Now, I've heard this word my whole life in Christian circles, I've heard it as process. And I bet most of you can identify with that. The process of sanctification is a phrase that's very common in sermons. I'm sure I've used it before. I'm sure that if you've been around church for any period of time, I hope you've heard it. The question I had to deal with in preparing this message is to deal with what, is it a process really? Or is it an event? Or is it both? Turn to Romans chapter 6. We're going to answer this question whether it's process or event. Are both. And this will matter. You'll see why this matters in a minute. Romans chapter 6. I'm going to begin in verse 15. This has some overlap with Steve Roberts' recent sermon on the use of the law from Romans. That the law is an instrument that God uses in the life of the believer. That it's no longer master, but now it's tutor. That we're no longer enslaved to it, but now it just serves as a guide to help us see what Christ has done and a tool and instrument for sanctification. 
So have that in mind as we climb into this in verse 15 of chapter 6. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law because under, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if, you're pres- if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Sounds like process. Let's continue. When you were slaves of sin, you were freed in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you were now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. This is the noun form of the very same word we're looking at over in John chapter 17, this word sanctification. And it seems to suggest that it's a process, that as slaves of righteousness, we're presenting our members as slaves of righteousness and are being sanctified, and the eventual end is eternal life. Sounds like a process, what I will call not yet. I'll explain that in a minute. Now turn to 1 Corinthians Chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, the use of this word here is a verb, and it's what's called the perfect tense. We don't have this tense in the English language. This tense is one of the most beautiful things about the Greek language. It's a tense that implies it would be our version of past tense, like something happened at some point in time. You were sanctified, but the word in the tense, perfect tense, implies that the effects of that reverberate over time, that the effects continue to linger. You were sanctified, and you will never be the same, is what the perfect perfect tense implies and brings out. It's a tense that we don't have in our language, but it's one that in this case, as we're reading it, we have to couple with Romans chapter 6 that looked like it was a process, and right here we have to look out and say, well, it looked like it's an event, and it looked like it's already completed. Look over a few chapters in chapter 6. Verse 11. And such were some of you, But you were washed. You were sanctified. You 
were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Past tense. The use of the word here is the aorist tense that says that is a point in time where that happened in the life of the believer. You were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. And ironically, this is written by the same dude that wrote Romans 6. So Paul, which is it? Is it something that has already happened at a point in time or is it something that's taken place as a not yet and as a process? And the answer would have to be yes. It's an already and a not yet. One of the most awesome things about the kingdom of God, if you study the kingdom of God and you study God's word and you study the story and you study the gospels, you see John the Baptist saying the kingdom of God is at hand. And then you see him later saying the kingdom of God is coming. Well, which is it, John? Is it at hand or is it coming? Jesus does the same thing. The kingdom of God is at hand, yet the kingdom of God is coming. Yes, they're both true. It is already and it is not yet. You have already been sanctified, but you have not yet been fully sanctified. Here's a verse that really brings out both. Don't turn there, just listen. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. Sound pretty final and awesome? Those who are being sanctified. Already and not yet. It is both a process and it is an event. It is a, a, a not yet and it is an already. It is something that has already been completed and fulfilled and finished. When Christ said it was finished on the cross, that's what he meant, it's finished. But then there's a big fat not yet as we live and walk in obedience. We've got to begin to look for already and not yet in God's word. Here's the reality. We are reckoned cleansed by the finished work of Christ, but yet we are being cleansed by the finished work of Christ. In sanctification, God reckons us something that we're not based on the finished work of another. That's the good news of the gospel. We are reckoned something that we clearly aren't. He reckons us holified, set apart, washed, consecrated and sanctified yet we're clearly not i know you and you know me and we're clearly not but yet he reckons us so i like to think about it how i think about marriage i've had the opportunity not only to be married but to do uh, and continue to be married (laughs) but to do wedding ceremonies And the funny thing about wedding ceremony is two individuals walk into a building as individuals and God shows up and a man says something, I pronounce you man and wife, in the eyes of God they walk out as one. Now, newlyweds, how's that going? (laughs) Are you one? It takes time to really be one. You're reckoned one in the eyes of God, but in reality and in practice, it takes time to learn how to truly be and live as one. It takes lots of fights. It takes lots of arguments. It takes work and sweat and tears and blood, hopefully very rarely. (laughs) It takes it all, man. But in the eyes of God on that day, you're reckoned one. Man, that's the already and not yet at work. 
He reckons us holified, set apart, washed, consecrated, and sanctified, yet we're clearly not. And then we spend the rest of our lives, whether minutes, like the thief on the cross, days or years, coming into alignment with what he's already reckoned. We grow up into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 4. That's the already, not yet. The thing that I was so excited about this morning was having the opportunity to present both in one setting. Because so often one sermon seems to emphasize more than the other. And there's this fear of someone walking away with a misshapen understanding of one or the other. I have a fear of overemphasizing the already because when you overemphasize the already, people can relax on the already and say, oh, me and God, we're square. I don't need him or his word or whatever he says I need because I'm sanctified already. But then if you overemphasize the not yet, if you focus too much on the not yet, the result is a bunch of people trying to earn their salvation, not realizing that we're already reckoned sanctified. And resting in a finished work. Both are at work in the life of the true saint. The already and not yet of sanctification. Now, who does this? This is important. Hopefully you're noting in this prayer in John chapter 17 that he's not praying, God, I I hope and pray that these guys will get themselves sanctified. God the Son is praying to God the Father and say, God the Father, sanctify them. You're the agent of sanctification. Please do your sweet, marvelous work of sanctification on these followers of mine. Not just the 11, but those who will believe in my name. Jot this down, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul, same author, says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that gets it done. It's a sweet picture of perichoresis in the work of the Trinity where the Son asks the Father, Father, sanctify them, and the Father sends the Holy Spirit to get it done. Isn't that awesome? The blur of the triune God getting it done through sanctification by the Holy Spirit and belief in the truth. There it is. Whatever we deem sanctification to be, event or process, and hopefully after this morning you can see that it's both, we must realize that it's something that the Holy Spirit does. Realize that the Son is asking the Father to sanctify His followers. It's the Holy Spirit that does it. We can't and won't and couldn't sanctify ourselves. It's His work. So if it's the Holy Spirit that does it, how does He get it done? I'm going to summarize a point from next week. We're going to explore this more next week. How has He already achieved the already? By the work of Christ on the cross. Christ suffered outside the camp on behalf of his followers. He was set apart and sanctified. You know, the verse 19, he says, I consecrated myself so that they may be sanctified. I sanctified myself so that they may be sanctified. That's the already that's achieved already. That's how it's accomplished. So how's the not yet done? How does the Holy Spirit achieve sanctification in the not yet? How does the process take place? What does he use 
The rest of this verse gives us the answer. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He's asking that they'll be sanctified in his word. If it just said sanctify them in the truth and he moved on, that would just sort of be airy and it would be hard to really grasp and say, okay, well, truth is just sort of out there somewhere. But he says, your word is truth. Man, that's something to grab right there. In fact, you may be grabbing it right now. It may be sitting in your hand or in your lap or in the pew back in front of you. That's what he's talking about. He doesn't say your word is true. What would be the implication if he said your word is the adjective true? It would imply that it's something that's true among lots of things that are true. It's a little subset of truth among lots of things that are true. He doesn't say that. He says your word is truth. Your word is it. It is the ultimate reality. That's what I've been hearing from Brad Cardwell the last few weeks. As they every morning are wrestling with a snot-nosed baby or dirty diapers or uh, kids that are fussy or are not, not obedient, they're wrestling with this. He said, man, i got to get to the corporate gathering of God's people because I need a dose of ultimate reality. I need at least one hour a week where I'm engaging something that's absolutely true because <laughs> the rest of my week is filled with a mess. I can't wait to get there and engage this ultimate reality. That's what God's word is. It's not a subset of truth among all things that are true. It is truth. And it's this book that you hold in your lap. Look back at Ephesians chapter 5. I told you that we were going to look at that closer and look at the wash rag. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So don't just think about a man and a woman. Think about Christ and the church. And he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. First of all, on a very practical, daily level, that ought to apply to a husband and a wife where a husband is really realizing that he is making his bride ready for Christ's return by washing her and cleansing her with the word, by engaging her with truth. The wash rag there is the word of God. It's not date night. And I love date night. It's not movie night. It's not doing the dishes. It's not, uh, you know, all the things that a man could do for his wife. It's... You're washing that woman by cleansing her with the word. Now, let's look at it in terms of Christ and the church. What is Christ using to cleanse the church? It is the word of God. It is the instrument of sanctification. It is what the Holy Spirit is using to cleanse the bride, us, for Christ's return. It's why I absolutely refuse to mail one in on a Sunday morning to get up and share some emails and funny jokes and stories that leave you ill-equipped for the next week. I hope and pray that God maintains that in me and in the other elders of this church, that we refuse to mail one in because you need the word for sanctification. It is what the Holy Spirit uses to 
cleanse you. It's what the husband uses to cleanse his wife. It's what Christ is using to cleanse the church is the word of God. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This big, awesome work of sanctification, of consecration, of holification is done with his word. This common book that sits in your common lap, that sits on your common bookshelves, in common homes, read by common men on common Thursday mornings. This common book preached by a very common man to a common people on the common first day of the week. At a, in this case, a common little old building on the south side of town. All these things are the, what God has ordained to cleanse his church. It just sounds like the kingdom of God to me, where the first is last and the last is first, where the Lord of the kingdom washes feet and ride a, rides a donkey's colt, for him to use the foolishness of us and his word, this book, and feeble preachers and teachers and shepherds in homes to cleanse his people. It's just like God to use something so common to do such an extraordinary work. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 was written by a psalmist that loved this book, that loved God's Word. I'll give you an example, or just to kind of help you get acquainted with how much he loved it. The psalm is so long, it's longer than, I, I don't know, is it longer than every other one? It may be, it's, I think it's the longest one in our Bible. And it's broken down alphabetically. It would be like if you love something so much and you're thinking, I... I want to think about how I could express my love for my girlfriend or my wife or for whatever it might be, food. That you write a poem and the outline that you use is the alphabet. A, it's awesome. It's amazing. I mean, you just think of everything that you can think of with A and then you move on to B and you go all the way through the alphabet. This thing, these little weird words that are in little subsettings, that's the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zion, Haith, Taith, Yod, Kaf, Lamech, Main, Nun, Samach, Ayan, Pei, Sade, Kof, Resh, Sin, Shin, Tav. Homeboy loved God's word. Before you even read what it says, you got to go, dude, you are captivated with God's word, aren't you? Listen to some of the things that he says about it, about this word. In verse 11, he says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They're my counselors. Verse 31, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Verse 34, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you've given me life. You hear that? For by this word, you've given me life? Dude, that's a little over the top, isn't it? No, it's just true. God's word is that awesome. Your word is a lamp unto my feet 
a light unto my path. One of the coolest passages in this chapter for me is verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. How do most of us handle God's word? When we're afflicted, we go to God's word to help sort it out. Is there anything wrong with that? No, but it's kind of getting things out of order. For here, the psalmist is saying, I'm glad I had afflictions because they took me to your word. But we're so consumer-driven in so many cases, we can say, I'm glad I have your word to help me with this affliction. And instead, we ought to be saying, thank you for this affliction because it takes me to your word where I get to know you and I am sanctified through that. This book is that awesome. It gives life. It sanctifies. Man. Turn to 1 Peter. Last place I'm going to have you go this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, who would have been another witness to this prayer in John chapter 17, says this about the word. Beginning in verse 23 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. I'll start in verse 22 for the sake of context. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Jump down to the end of the little section there in verse 25. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. That's how awesome this word is. It's the thing that God has used to give you life in the first place. It is the sanctifying instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to give and grow and develop life. Look down a couple verses in chapter 2, verse 2. Peter says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. If you have the New American Standard, it says, the pure spiritual milk of the word that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This word, God's word, is pure spiritual milk. And it's what nourishes you as you grow up to salvation. And it's how we taste the goodness of the Lord. You can have nice, sweet, sentimental thoughts about God. You can hear a tearful story that really is just awesome and emotional. But if it's not exposing the Word of God or relating to the Word of God, it's not growing you up to salvation. That's why we don't want to mail one in from week to week. And that's why shepherds, you ought to refuse to mail one in week after week, not opening the Bible in your homes. That's why small group shepherds should say, you know what? I love fellowship. I love to have a meal with my small group. I love playing games, but I will not sacrifice the exposure of God's word for those things. Elders, small group shepherds, it's the best we can give our people. Shepherds at home, it's the best you can give your people. You say you love your family, wash them with the word. You say you love your wife, wash her with the word. You say you love your small group, wash that small group 
with the Word. There's a sober reality that you can't be and aren't sanctified apart from the Word of truth. It's what the Holy Spirit has ordained to cleanse you. That's got to impact and invade our week. It's got to. What doesn't sanctify you? Fellowship doesn't sanctify you. I love fellowship, but it doesn't sanctify you. The reality is we can find fellowship in a biker gang. We can find fellowship in being in a gang in L.A., in a club, in the workplace, in some hobby or activity. You can find fellowship, and fellowship in and of itself is not bad, but fellowship is not what sanctifies the people of God. It's the Word of God. So the fellowship has got to be gathered around the exposure and the engagement of the Word of God for it to be sanctifying. Other things that are not sanctifying, family time is not sanctifying. Is family time good? You bet. I love it. I love to play chess with Luke. We had a wee night the other night where the kids all spanked us like dogs. I love that kind of fellowship, but it doesn't sanctify. Is it bad? No. Knock yourself out. Play wee. Play chess. But don't look to it to cleanse you. You need this hour, and you need the weekly engagement of the agent that God has ordained to cleanse his people, which is the word, the exposure, and the journey in the word. Friendship does not sanctify. Sentiment does not sanctify. Recreation does not sanctify. Fun does not sanctify. Work does not sanctify. Each of those things is good. Please do all of the above. But do not look to those things to prepare you for glory. The funny thing is that the elders see is it's so hard for us to reconcile the reality. We see people sometimes that are hurting. And they're thinking, I need to get my act together. Once I get my act together, I will regather with the people of God. I will take the supper. I will fellowship again with the people of God. Once I get fixed. And we're saying, dude, that's the medicine. It's like saying, I'm not going to go to the doctor until I'm well. You've got to realize it's the word is the sanctifying instrument. It's the word that cleanses you. It's the word that readies you for glory. You need it. Don't come when you're fixed. Otherwise, you'll never come. Come broken and needy and hungry and in need of cleansing. Man, it's the word that sanctifies. Christ pled on the eve of his cross with his father, with his father for the sanctification of his followers. That's really good news. And that instrument of sanctification is the word of God. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the time that we've had together engaging the work that's already been completed and the work that has yet to be completed. Lord, I pray this morning that we've engaged both fairly and that we can leave here in a few minutes realizing and trusting and knowing that we have already been sanctified, yet trusting and knowing that those who are truly yours are being sanctified
And that we can know and trust that the instrument of sanctification is the Word of God. Preached, taught, engaged, read, feasted on. Lord, I beg you to do that in us. I beg you to remind us of that. I beg you to keep that in front of us. I pray that this pulpit will be a place of consistent exposure to truth. Lord, I pray that the homes of the small group shepherds and the homes of our shepherds that are leading families will be places where the truth is exposed and those little micro versions of the church as a family or micro slices of our church as small groups are that we as a church will be cleansed and ready for Christ's return. Lord, I pray that we'll be holified. I pray that we'll be set apart, that we'll come into alignment with what we were made to do as worshipers, as vessels for honorable use. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that you prayed out loud, that your son prayed out loud, and that you deemed it recordable, that John was there to write these words down. I'm thankful that we have a setting where we can engage this each week. It's awesome. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper this morning, and I have a little bit of a different Lord's Supper preparation passage I want to share with you. It's about a shipwreck. It's in our Bible. It's not extra biblical. I want you to hear this story. Just listen to this story from Acts chapter 27 before we take the supper. Paul at this point has been arrested in Jerusalem. He's gone before guys like Agrippa and Felix and he's appealed to Caesar. So as a Roman citizen, they are required to take him to Rome. So they're going to take him to Rome via ship. And it's planes, trains, and automobiles. I mean, it's multiple ships. So listen to how this goes in chapter 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, that would be Rome specifically, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. (coughs) Putting out to sea, pay attention to this journey, it's just madness. Putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. They got winds against them right off the bat. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, he's speaking of seasonal danger with storms, Paul advised them saying, um, Sirs, 
I perceive that the voyage will be with much injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. And apparently, all said, Shut up, Paul. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot than to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, it's a good decision, looks like, so far. They weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. (laughs) Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. I mean, this ship travel is a bummer. Serious, behind whipping. Since they had been without food for a long time, it just gets worse. They don't even have anything to eat. Paul, don't do it, Paul. Don't do it. He's about to do it. Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Paul, I told you not to do it. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you. He's got an I told you so, but he's got some good news. But only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the, of, of the God to whom I belong, And whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. It's like a New Testament version of the flood. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Sorry. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. Their sound effects would be like jaws. No, 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 no. The music's getting louder. It's getting shallower and shallower. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn... Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. Here, supper. 
And take some food, it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread. And giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 267 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. And the end of the chapter says, all were brought safely to land. Yet another watery ordeal braved by the people of God. And man, the supper's right in the middle of that. The Saddlers pointed out to me yesterday that this would be the first day that little Sydney would have the chance to take the Lord's Supper. And I said, how appropriate, because she's braved the watery ordeal. I don't know if you've ever thought about the Lord's Supper as something that you need after you've been starving for 14 days, that you need before you face a dark night of a shipwreck. Christ took the Lord's Supper the night before. He's nailed to a cross. Have you ever thought about the supper as something that you need to prepare you for tomorrow? or prepare you for this next week or this next month or this next season of difficulty, run to the supper. Take it eagerly with Paul and a ship full of scared people. Take heart, let's eat. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. Be encouraged. As we take the cup, consciously enjoy the already. Enjoy the reality when he said it's finished, that it was really finished. I mean, really enjoy that. And then also as you take the cup, say, Lord, give me the grace to walk in the not yet. And Lord, give me the grace to tether me, tether me to your word, engage me in the, the journey of faith via the work of the Holy Spirit through the exposure of this awesome common book with a common people. Man, that's, that's something I urge you to commit to as we take this together. Take and drink. Let's continue in song.
This morning, some of the language that was directed at husbands, toward your wives, and as shepherds, toward your families, uh, I want to encourage you to read your Bibles. If you don't know where to begin, man, begin at Genesis. And just set aside once or twice a week, just shoot for at least once a week, to sit and read with your family. Even if you read without commentary, the Word is not going to return void. Is it going to be as good as if, you know, you have some deep study? No, not necessarily. But I'm not asking you for that. I'm asking you to start somewhere. Start with reading the Bible with your family. It does a couple things. It tells your family that it matters. And if that's what the Holy Spirit uses to sanctify you, then God's going to do something with it. He just is. And I promise you this, it's going to seem common and ordinary and unimpressive. I promise you that. But that's just His way. The Lord of this kingdom that we walk in rode a donkey's colt. Do you think the disciples were standing around going, look at him go? I bet they were standing around going, Jesus, you look like a goob. Let's find a stallion for you to ride. Man, you, they're, back, they're cheering for you. Don't get on that. He's washing their feet. Don't wash my feet. Man, the Lord of this kingdom, is, he's about common. He takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And I promise you, it will feel foolish, insignificant, ineffective to sit and do that with your family. But God will do something with it. I make that promise to you. He will do something with it. Start there. If you're doing that and you want to kind of move to the next level, not that that's dependent on, the ne- on this next level, I would say it was something that could go with it is connect to a small group. Man, I, church is so much more than just this one gathering. It's p- being part of a people. And being part of a people means knowing and being known. So in order to know and be known, you have to engage people. And you need to bump into them and meet them. And they ask you what you do for a living. You add, there's a little small talk till you get to know each other. And it's uncomfortable. But you get past that uncomfortable spot, and then you have a friend. And then you have a friend that's looking for you on Sunday morning. I need that. I mean, y'all expect me to be here. But I haven't always done this. I mean, Christy and I, of our 16-year marriage, 15, something like that. I'm kind of tired, preaching all, you know. Um, been doing this seven years, you know. I've always done this. We used to be folks that just kind of went. And something that helped us in times, we were, like we had a friend that missed us. And that's not the reason to go to church. It's just accountability. So knowing and being known, man, that's coolness. And what we do in these small groups is there'll be a time of fellowship, but ideally every week there's a time of let's see what God said. Let's figure out how that can invade Tuesday or Thursday or lunchtime or my cubicle or my neighborhood. That's what small groups are. It's time of prayer. We share things that we can be praying for. Who wouldn't want that? And I guarantee it's going to be an uncomfortable thing until you get known and you know. But you just work through that. Trust Him. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss you. Thanks for being here this morning. Let me pray. God, we just enjoy you right now as we dismiss. I pray that as we leave...
And as we begin the rest of this week, that this week is an offering. I'm thankful that we're well nourished after that meal and that we can face whatever you have in store for us this week. That we cross through the watery ordeal unscathed, trusting and knowing that we have a good God that's attentive and involved and engaged. We love you, Lord. We thank you so much for the finished work of sanctification and the ongoing work of sanctification. We beg for more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.